Okay, so let's get back to how to break anxiety in adolescence. Um, I just want to touch a little bit real quick on the risk factors again for anxiety. Uh, when I see parents, I share with them, yes, yes, uh, genetics can play a part in the anxiety risk factors. However, it's more inclined when you're dealing with disorders such as OCD and temperament also plays a, a factor because they're often behaviorally inhibited. Um, we also know that social factors nurture how parents talk about the world is a significant contributor. Worried families, it's a generational thing. And we cannot pull out the nature and the nurture. So that's why I say to parents that if I if it's nature, it's you. If it's nurture, it's you. <laughs> that's just the way it is. But it's good news. The fact that we know parents have such an important impact um, with the development of anxiety. And that's good news because we have a role to play. So when I'm talking to parents, I say, look, you're worried like I'm watching you do it in my office. Your child is learning to worry from you. And that's a good thing because we can actually recognize it and start to interrupt these patterns. And we can start showing you how to use your language differently, how to um, model problem solving, how to deal with things within the world. There are three qualities that we know um, in anxious families, three qualities that we see in the kids. And just parenthetically, very, very rarely in my office do I see a really anxious little muffin with two laid back parents. Very, very um, seldom do I ever find this. But one, they, they are lousy at tolerating uncertainty. Um, they're not very good at independent problem solving. And they don't score very well on the autonomy scales. And so what we have to think about within these families is how can we teach these things? Being able to be uncertain, being able to tolerate ambiguity, how do we promote independent problem solving instead of jumping into fix? How do these kids have the ability to get more autonomy? And autonomy is huge because we have these devices now that we can track our kids. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get in my smart phone rant, but eventually I, I might. Um, so what a lot of um, parents and even sometimes therapists do with anxious kids is what feels good. We're trying to be supportive um, and it feels caring and it feels nurturing and we're trying to get these kids to not suffer. So if you have an anxious parent that you're working with, that parent doesn't want their child to feel the same way that they did when they were growing up. So they know what it feels like. Um, there was a parent that I worked with that um, would go to the, to the bus every morning 
and throw up when he was a child, and he said nobody knew about it. Um, but he doesn't want his child to feel that way. So what happens when we deal with a lot of anxiety all the time? We tend to focus on the content. We focus too much on what you're worried about. We give a lot of information. We give a lot of information and and reassurance and statistics. The other thing we try to do is try to figure out why. Why is my child um, worried? Where is the worry coming from? There are two reasons why kids are anxious. One, it runs in the family. There might be a genetic push, but it's also learned and modeled behavior and it's hard to sort those two things out. The other thing is that something happened. There's a trauma. I will tell you that when I'm working with anxious families with generational anxiety, they do prefer explanation two versus explanation one. They want to know the thing that happened. They'd say everything was fine until everything was fine until she went on that field trip. Everything was fine until she went to summer camp. Everything was fine until they saw Harry Potter. But once you go into the history, not everything was fine. It was just that something happened and the behavior and the refusal got big and that's when the parents saw the problem started. One of the things that I don't like is going back and trying to make this connection that may or may not exist. So I had a family that I was working with and the parents weren't super aware of their own personal anxiety behavior, but they told me an interesting story. Um, this little girl had been showing signs of anxiety, right? But um, it was probably really OCD because that was showing up. But anyways, this is about six years old and they took her to a therapist and the therapist concluded um what the girl was OCDing about was whether or not her mom was going to be okay. So, you know, she had to have a lot of routines. Her bed had to be a certain way. Um, but for a kindergartner, this is, you know, worrisome. Um, she had, if her mom made a noise because she was worried about her mom getting hurt, she would have to turn to her mom and, and her mom would have to relieve her um, so she could calm down. Uh, What this therapist said when this little girl was six was because the mom's mom had died of cancer when this little girl was eight, eight months old, that that was the start of all of this. And that was the cause of the daughter's Um, of the little girl's anxiety. Now, at eight months, the little girl had no memory of this happening. What the therapist missed completely is that dad had super bad OCD. He was so OCD-ish that it was like within seconds that I could pick up on the vibe. vibe. Um, Mom was a worry, but no one talked about that. Um, And luckily they did go to this next therapist um, who did recognize that it was OCD and the OCD symptoms um, by the time she was nine were more obvious. But making that connection 
between the death of a grandmother when you're eight months old and now makes absolutely no sense. And uh, like that kind of information can take you down a track that's not helpful in particular with OCD because it definitely the content does not matter. And if you're in the content, trying to understand it, trying to explain it, you're going down the wrong path. So, all right. Focusing on eliminating symptoms. The more we try to eliminate this thing, the stronger it gets. It's paradoxical. The more we say, don't think about, don't think about a... um, the worry. You can't have the worry. You can't have any distress. You can't have any dis- discomfort. The stronger those thoughts will get. Um, what we want to do is acknowledge, recognize, and understand how this very busy brain works and how we're going to offer a response and reaction as to how worry works. If we focus on the content, we're going to go down the wrong path. Our goal is to see where the patterns are and how to interrupt them. How can we interrupt this pattern? Isn't it wonderful when you're teaching a child how to recognize their own patterns and how to interrupt them? I was So what I'm focusing on teaching is... So again, if we think prevention, if we think about this in a prevention mode, in the light of prevention, this is what we want to pay attention to. Knowing those three things that show up in anxious families, this is what we want to do. How do we want to create problem solvers? You know, one of the things that they're doing now with teenage suicide prevention, one of the targets um, in the good prevention programs for teenage suicide is problem solving, the ability to problem solve that when you're in a situation, how do you step back and figure out what do you need to do? Is it internal? Is it external? Can I handle this myself? Do I need to ask for help? All of those things. So prevention and treatment, they are the Olsen twins of the mental health field. Remember, we used to think they were identical twins, but actually, first we thought they were one baby, and then we thought they were identical twins, and ah, shockingly, we learned they were fraternal twins. <laughs> nice little tidbit. tidbit. I, um, yeah, they're not, they're fraternal, not identical. It's interesting information. So that's your takeaway from this uh, podcast, that the Olsen twins are not identical. (laughs) There's such an overlap, not only an overlap between the cognitive patterns of depression and anxiety, but the prevention of treatment. So isn't that cool that we, we don't have to come up with all of those specific things. We can lump it up together and we can do some really, really good work. Um, Anyway, so typically there are four questions, and these are the questions I'm always thinking about. What are the resources? What are the strengths that this family has? How am I going to use it? Do they have a good sense of humor? Are they creative? Are they active? Are they connected? Do they have 
a lot of friends? Do they have a large, broad social social uh, network? Are they intelligent? What are their resources? Are, are they articulate? What are the resources I'm going to use? Where's the gap that's sustaining the pattern? What is the thing that they don't know how to do and how am I going to teach them? As therapists, I feel like we need to be really concrete, particularly with anxiety and depression. We need to teach skills. And if you don't know how, then no amount of talking about it is going to teach you how to do it. If you don't know how to find an area of a triangle, talking about how distressed that makes you feel is not going to help you figure out the area of a triangle. We need to teach skills. We need to tell people what to do, and that's okay. The error of, well, how does that make you feel? Well, it doesn't work with kids. It doesn't work with anxious kids. So say I was a mechanic. I used to be a therapist and next year I'm going to be a mechanic. I've been doing it for too long. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to fix cars. It's concrete. I don't have to talk to any, anybody anymore. Every once in a while I do. But so anyways, I'm a mechanic, car mechanic, and I've been a therapist for a while and your car doesn't start. So you bring your car in to see me. And I say, oh my God, what happened to your car? Oh, it doesn't start. That must be so frustrating for you, right? Tell me more about how you feel about that. Well, it was really hard this morning. I had to go to work and I couldn't get to work and my best boss was irritating. And oh yeah, so that's tough. I hear (laughs) you. So is this a pattern for you? Has this happened before? Does your car often not start? Yeah. Do you remember growing up? Did your mom's not a car not start? Should we talk about that? Yeah. So I feel like we've made a connection. We're building rapport. So I'm going to take your money. I'm going to keep your car. Why don't you think about what we talked about? And then you can come back next week and we can talk some more about your, why your car doesn't start, right? You'd be like, okay fix the car. Tell me what I need to do. I just want my car to run. Get in there. So we're going to talk about from how the first moment we're going to get to work. When people come to see you, they're taking time from taking time off from work. They're taking their kids out of school. They have to deal with insurance companies. They have to do all these things. You need to hit the ground running and tell them what to do. The biggest complaint parents have when I say to them, I see you've been in therapy before um, and most of the kids that I've seen at this point have had treatment before and they might be currently in treatments. Um, But so I say to parents, tell me what you need. Tell me what isn't working. What can I do? And the biggest complaint that parent says is nobody told me what to do. They want to know. They say, tell me what to do. And because anxiety is so generational, we've got to give parents coaching. We've got to give parents support. We've got to give parents language. So I'm a process person. As I said, 
We're going to talk about the process of anxiety, the big picture skills, the umbrella that works for all the anxiety disorders. That's what I want you to pay attention to. I want you to have a thinking process that really consists of what does this family not know what to do and how do I teach it? So I'm going to know, I'm going to recognize, I'm going to be able to see where the gaps are. I'm going to be able to see how the symptoms are maintained and I'm going to get in there in all sorts of ways and I'm going to start to interrupt it. So how does anxiety operate? That's a lot of action right now. How does anxiety operate? What does it do and what does it want from us? What does anxiety demand from us? It is a cult leader and its demands are very powerful and very specific. And if you've been in a cult, you know, <laughs> you, you just probably don't even know you're in a cult if you're in a cult and you're not going to self-identify. Uh, you're going to be like, oh no, it's just a group of people and we all really stick together. Anyway, <laughs> um, this cult leader wants certainty and comfort. That's what it wants. It wants to know everything and it wants to be comfortable doing it. So as we, we learn and as we're going to go through this and as I do this with families, we're going to lay down the foundation so you understand how this thing works and then we're going to teach the skills and you're going to go out and use them. Anxiety and worry do not get better by talking about it. They just don't. So first thing, the term, if we are going to talk about a bottom layer, laying down the, the foundation, front loading, anything that I ask a family to do, and I'm going to ask them to do stuff that they're probably not going to be thrilled about doing. And um, I'm going to ask them to do stuff that's opposite of what their cult demands. Because in order to pull them out of that cult, I've got to show them some different things. And they need to understand my, my rationale. They need to understand my thinking. They have to understand where we go where we're going. And that's the front loading. If we have a kid that refuses to go to school... One of the important tenets of school refusal is we need them in the building as soon as possible for as long as possible because the longer they stay out of school, the more they're escaping, the more anxiety is going to be like, yes, let's escape. So we have to get them in the building as soon as possible because just bringing them in and we just know the rationale behind that, that's fine, but it really helps if they know it too that they have an understanding of it. And if, if you have a common foe of the cult leader, they'll get, uh, you'll have a lot more participation, a lot less resistance. We want kids to become an ep expert on their own worry and their own anxiety. So when I'm talking to kids and the parents, I explain that anxiety is super predictable. It does the same thing all the time. So when they do share with me what their situation is, this is this is how I react. I react by telling them that absolutely nothing that you have said today is shocking to me. Nothing that you have said today makes me feel like, oh, 
Nothing at all, because anxiety is predictable. Everything that you have shared is is something that I would have expected you to tell me. Um, it's a different circumstance with everybody, but the majority of what you're sharing is what anxiety does. And when I teach kids, um, that actually makes people feel a lot less worried um, about the fact that they have anxiety. It, it gives them a lot of release. Um, but that's the thing about anxiety. It does the same thing over and over and over again. And when we talk about anxiety with uh, my clients, we're like, ah, it's predictable. It's less scary. Um, anyway, not so scary. So we want to break it down. And here's the simplest way that we can describe it. As I said, it wants certainty and comfort. And when I talk to kids and I say, what does your worry want? They say certainty and comfort. They already know. Um, If they're a little person and they don't know what certainty is, I teach it to you um, and then they'll know what it is. And you want to feel comfortable. Anytime your body starts to feel weird, anxiety will tell them, whoop, we're out because anxiety is about avoidance. When it shows up, boom, it's a no thank you. The teenagers say no thank you and that's what leaves that leads them to depression because then they'll start going to their room, they'll quit activities, they won't participate um, in things, they won't be out in the world doing what they're supposed to developmentally do, which is connect. So anyway, so this is how anxiety works. Um, and I'm going to share this with you, and I do this with my clients, um, and I do it with the, with the parents, um, because most families don't know this information. Sometimes they know a little bit here and there. They might know what the amygdala is. Um, a kid might have a health class, or they're in a group at school, and they've talked about the amygdala. And maybe they've learned about it, but how they understand this cycle is, is very helpful. So worry starts in the prefrontal cortex. Um, This is not a sophisticated neurological explanation explanation about lots of different parts of the the brain. We want to make it less complicated so kids understand it. So worry shows up in the prefrontal cortex. I ask, what's 8 plus 8? It's 16, right? So that's your prefrontal cortex. Um, thinking right there, what is, uh, eight times, eight times eight, that's what, uh, what's, what's the date today? (laughs) I'm not even sure what date it is today. Um, but what's the date after the day after tomorrow? Um, that's using your prefrontal cortex. Um, so I'll ask a kid these kind of questions and I'll explain this is where you think this is your fancy sophisticated part of your brain this is where you plan this is where your executive functioning is this is where your imagination is Um, this is where you imagine things that have not happened yet and this is where you think about things that you've never never done this is this is where worry lives Um, and because we're human beings and we have prefrontal cortexes. We focus on the future and we imagine things that haven't happened yet. 
Or we think about the past and we worry about things that have already happened. Um, We think about have we done or could we do? Um, My my dog doesn't do this. She doesn't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Animals typically don't do this. Um, My dog is a in-the-moment dog. So I'm going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. Right now, I'm going to make make a comment. Uh, you don't know for sure about the people that you, lo- you, you love the most. You don't know if they're okay right now. Um, you don't know that. It's going to make you uncomfortable, right? Um, we also know we're going to die. We don't know when. We don't know how. Um, and that makes us uncomfortable. That's going to zip us into the future and recognize what we're unaware of and that's what will start making us worry but our prefrontal cortex is there and it helps us resolve problems as well as create worry and there's an imagination thing going on but worry is not always terrible right so if you're binging on networks and you have a paper that's due worry is going to get you um off your butt and writing that paper So it's when you're anticipating and you're worrying about something that happened before and you start doing this audio and video process in your brain, you start sending a a message to your amygdala, which is a small structure in your brain, which is the size of your almond, of an almond. And actually the the name of amygdala comes, means almond. Um, It's your alarm system. And it learns from experience and it remembers uh, what it learns and it hangs on to that. So when you have trauma, it's going to hang on to that. When the amygdala gets triggered by this uh uh-oh danger message from the prefrontal cortex, um, the what if I make a fool of myself? What if I throw up? What if someone steals me when I'm sleeping? What if a dog bites me? What if you choke? What if, what if, what if? Um, when the amygdala gets this message, it has one response. It can't differentiate between real danger, grizzly bear, and worried danger. I might make a fool out of myself during this podcast. And then it sends a message, gets a response. My girl is in trouble. That's pretty much what it says. You can't turn this off. You can't say we didn't mean to... Uh, tell you we're in danger, that my ponytail is all messed up or whatever. Um, It sends a message down to the adrenal glands. Your adrenal glands are then popping these things like little spray bottles through your system. And norepinephrine and and epinephrine, uh, known also as adrenaline, Um, But these chemicals, these messengers are going to activate your body to get you ready for danger. So first thing we want to do is we want blood and oxygen to start flowing through your muscles. Uh, So we're going to increase our heart rates, Uh, blood and oxygen. We're going to dilate your pupils so you can scan the environment and see where the danger is. We're going to throw some blood clotting stuff into your system in case your <laughs> grizzly bear rips your arm off and you bleed out or so you don't bleed out. Um, <laughs> when I tell kids this, they they usually think it's cool. Um, the other thing that happens that uh, 
also kids don't know. Um, and I would love this to be a phrase tattooed on their eyeballs. When you set off your fight or flight systems, it also shuts down non-essential systems because your body is so clever and does not want to waste any energy on doing things that are not immediately necessary for your survival. You, you have a very, very big non-essential system um, it, and it's called your digestive system. It's so when you activate this system, your brain and your body is saying, we are not going to expend any energy digesting your bagel with cream cheese. We're going to cease operation and send your energy where it needs to go. And that's going to make your stomach feel weird. Your finger, your fingertips, they're not essential. So if you're being chased by a grizzly bear, um, and you're, you might feel tingling in, in your extremities. Um, all of this happens really quickly, powerfully. It impacts the temperature of your body. Your muscles are tense. They're activated, ready to go. I mean, think about this. You're about to take a math test. Your pupils are dilating. Your digestive system goes down. Your heart, your heart rate goes up. Your respiration decreases. You your muscles are tense, your fingers are tingling, and your prefrontal cortex goes offline because the amygdala has just taken over. Now, if you've never had this experience before, it will totally freak you out. And if it happens to kids and adults and they've never had it before, they'll often end up in the emergency room and they'll tell them you're having an anxiety attack. Um, well, so now you know, but you don't want to have it again. So then you try to avoid having those kinds of sensations. So maybe you're afraid of taking a test or speaking in, in public or flying in an airplane. But now what you're afraid of also now we're afraid of feeling worried. So now we're worrying about having this reaction in our body. So you start to have the physical response and you're thinking, oh, no, no, it's happening again. And your amygdala is like, woohoo. And it gives you another dose. And now you're up on the ceiling. So very common in performance, people that have performance anxiety, you start worrying about the worry. So of course, that's going to cause people to want to avoid things. Um... But we don't want, even though it's it's difficult, we don't want to try to um, not let children get upset. Um, and then I don't mean to say we're going to bombard kids with things that are going to make them upset, but avoidance is the disorder. So like vomiting, there's, there's, there are clients that are... are petrified and they're worried that they're going to vomit. Well, you know, we're the, the odds of you vomiting at some point or another is about 100%. And chances are you're not going to know when that's going to happen. So anxiety is not going to like that because it has the element of surprise, right? We're all going to die. We don't know when. Uh, people are going to get sick. We don't know when. People you love are going to die. <sighs> you know, we've all embarrassed ourselves. Think about that moment when you're a teenager, when you absolutely humiliated yourself. We, we don't plan on it. 
but we're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to get rid of worry thoughts. We have our prefrontal cortex. We have the ability to imagine things. We're not getting rid of it. We're not going to get the amygdala removed. Um, <laughs> even though those, those um, feelings, those rush high impact feelings are, are scary sometimes. Um, but no, we can't get it removed because sometimes you actually need it and it can be super good. Um, but what we can do is we can start reacting and responding in a different way to the, to the worry thoughts when they show up. And of course, you're going to feel worried. Um, of course, when you take your driver's license exam, you're going to feel worried that you're going to fail. Of course, it's scary when you go for a job interview. Um, and of course, if you get on a plane and you start thinking about the, the plane crashing, um, it's going to feel scary. Why do you think that people even start thinking about a plane crashing when you get on a plane? It's because we're talking about it when we get on the plane. Um, and how can you help but think, oh my God, that would so suck if this plane crashed. But you can't help it because you're, you're thinking about it because people are talking about it. Um, they're giving you safety guidance about a plane crashing. Um, so what we need to do is start that front loading, which is understanding and change the reaction. Step one, we have the worry thought. We might even have a reaction or a feeling. Um, step two is how do we respond to it? Um, and think about how we do that in a normal course of the day. Um, I'm pretty good with talking to kids about using meta metaphors and analogies, but how often do you think about something and decide not to say it? How often do you have an impulse to do something, but you don't? How often do you change courses because that's not working? So we have the capacity to do that when worry shows up and if we treat it as if it needs our attention, that we have to follow its dictate, dictate for certain comforts, then we're doing the disorder. So if we just throw learning issues and ADHD into the mix, this is what it looks like. As I said earlier, you know, if you know you're going to have trouble doing something or if you know that you're going to get pulled out of class and people are going to notice um, and if you think you're not going to be able to do something, that causes a lot of anxiety when we feel equipped. So you start, ooh, and, you, and you're probably less able to learn at that time because you're freaking out and you're not able to pay attention and it just spirals. And why would kids like that want to go to school why would they want to put their self in that situation over and over again? So avoidance becomes the distraction and it becomes the charm. If you're anxious about something and you can avoid it, you're good. If you're terrified to fly, don't get on a ter don't get on the plane. If you're afraid of a roller coaster, don't get on the roller coaster. The problem is is what happens when worry interferes with normal stuff. If you're afraid of talking to people, if you're afraid of making a mistake, if you're afraid every dog you, you see is going to attack you, if you're afraid that the world in general is a dangerous place and there's risk everywhere, you know, so 
anxious parents tend to be the safety checker. They'll be like, be careful, be careful, or like, ooh, be quiet, be quiet, don't talk. Um, safety chatter. Um, anyway, so the concepts uh, as we face anxiety, critical concepts. So here are the critical concepts. Let's go through them real quick. Content versus process. Contact, a content does not matter a whole lot to me when you have a worrier, when you have someone anxious and you're focus, focusing on changing the content, you're doing the disorder. Um, a content-based intervention means the focus of your treatment is changing around you instead of changing the worry inside. So if you go to like a soccer practice um, and there's a dog there and your daughter or son is afraid of the dog, then you'd be like, oh, you know what? There's a dog there. You don't have to go uh, to practice because the dog is there. Uh, if there's a fire drill uh, going off in school, you're your student is told that they don't have to um, participate in the fire drill because they're afraid of it or it causes them anxiety. If there is an assignment given and you have anxiety, then your kid is allowed extra time to finish the, uh, the assignment. If you do that with a perfectionist OCD kid, what happens? They use every minute and they cannot hand it in on time still. If we're talking about a process-based intervention, then we're more focused on how worry works. Um, so, you know, some people might think that this approach won't work because some kids can't um, articulate what they're worrying about. Um, like, there's a, a couple of my students at the school that will share that they're worried, but they don't know what they're worried about. Um, so basically, anything that they're uncertain or uncomfortable about is what they're worried about, but they, they can't articulate it. Um, there is a client that had OCD intrusive thoughts, but he could not he could not tell me because he was embarrassed um, because it had to do with, you know, sexual parts and he didn't want to talk to me about it. So I told him, you don't have to tell me what you're worried about, but I'm going to teach you how this worry thing works and how we can learn to have your brain interrupt it. And I'm going to share with you how to interrupt that crazy thinking, cult-driven brain um, through process during our next podcast. And I truly appreciate you, you coming and listening to my podcast. I hope that you found something helpful so far. And I would love to hear feedback from you. Or if you have any questions, please feel free to respond. Talk to you soon. Thank you.